Welcome to Truthiverse, the number one podcast for free and discerning minds. I'm your host, Brendan Murphy, author and founder of The Truthiversity. As a freedom hacker and truth addict, it's my job to help you reclaim yourself from illusion and live in your power. Living in truth sets you free to holistically upgrade your entire life so you can explore infinite possibility. Join me as we hack our way to a higher evolution. Hey, and welcome. Truth of Us is an audience-supported podcast and an audience-supported Substack as well. You can find me over there on Substack at official Brendan Murphy. And if you enjoy this work, please join the growing body of consciously evolving minds and voyage with us into forgotten and forbidden realms of knowledge. So do hit that like button, share with your fellow seekers, and if you haven't yet, please do consider becoming a paid subscriber, whether it's over on my Substack or through buying me a coffee right here via the podcast. Also, feel free to check out my private evolutionary accelerator, Evolve Yourself, over at evolveyourself.live for the free masterclass. And of course, I do invite you to join me inside the members-only Truthiversity for all premium content, including part two of every podcast. See truthiversity.com for more information. Researching, writing, and podcasting is what I do full-time, so thanks in advance for your support. It does mean a lot to me. All right, welcome to this episode. I am stoked to welcome Raymond Moody and Paul Perry onto the show. Let me just give you a little bit of background about these guys and tell you why they're here. So Dr. Raymond Moody is the leading authority on near-death experiences and the author of several books, including Life After Life, which almost single-handedly kicked off the near-death experience movement back in the 1970s. He's also the founder of the Life After Life Institute and has lectured on the topic throughout the world and is also a counselor in private practice. To learn more about Raymond after the show, you can go to lifeafterlife.com. And Paul, his co-author, Paul Perry, has written several New York Times bestsellers, including The Light Beyond and Evidence of the Afterlife. He's also a documentary filmmaker. And for his film and book about Salvador Dali, he has actually been knighted in Portugal, also a graduate of uh, Arizona State University and Antioch University. And to learn more about Paul and his work and background, you can head to paulperryproductions.com. All right, with that said, I am absolutely, yes, delighted to have these two gents on to discuss a subject I have been doing massive amounts of research into. And, um, you know, I first became aware of Raymond's work many years ago. I've been doing this for about 20 years now. So uh, what can I say? The guy is a virtually a walking library uh, on the, this subject and related subjects. And you're about to find out what an interesting guy he would be to have around for dinner. But as Paul warns, Nobody is going to eat any of the food because they're just going to be entranced and mesmerized by Raymond and his very diverse and interesting um, perspectives on these things. So without further ado, welcome to the show. This is all about life after death or life after life, shared near-death experiences and the various tangents that come off from those subjects. Enjoy and I'll see you next time. I want to hear Raymond introduce himself. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's do that then. I'll, I'll, uh, I'm happy to do that. Let's, let's do it that way then. And then Paul, we can um, let you jump in after Raymond does his, his thing. Um, and so the book, I'm just looking at proof of life after life. So proof of life after life. And you guys, um, obviously co-wrote this. So yeah, I'm keen to, I'm keen to dig into this. This is, you guys probably don't know anything about me, but, um, the book I'm working on finishing at the moment is all about this subject. So I'm. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty well versed, and I know that you guys are as well, uh, which is good. This is right up my alley. <laughs> great, great. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Do you mind me asking how you got interested in it? Yeah. Yeah, like as a, I don't know why, but as a, I remember distinctly as a 15 year old, um, had this wondering of what happens when you die for some reason, and you know, wow, cool. That just stuck with All me, and. Right. Did yeah, you like, have somebody in the family die, or I don't think at that point anybody had really. Um, no one, no one that I was close to. Um, but I, I think that you know, now that I've got more hindsight, I can sort of see. Well, you know, doing this is part of you know the work I'm supposed to do here. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah, I've been doing that since you were had a felt. You, my calling to it was at age eighteen through philosophy. Uh huh. Never had any. I, I was interested in astronomy, but um, and no religious background really, and and uh, so I first got the serious life after death problem in reading Plato, and his exposition of it was so terrific, and I just he still the very best book ever written on the afterlife is Plato's Phaedo. 
I, yeah. uh, I've seen it quoted many places and many places along the way, and I'll, I'll sit down and read it properly one day. Um, That's what I always say. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read it properly, Raymond, as you know. Well, he talks about it's basically outlines 12 factors that come into, by my count, come into the, any picture where you're thinking about the prospect of national proof of an afterlife. And, and you know, they're identically the same. Hmm. Although a lot of the so-called experts on this parapsychology wink, they've never read it. And, and it, their work, the reason their work is invalid is because they've never read it. So, so uh, you are like I'm getting you dropping in and out just a little bit, Raymond. Are you saying you're criticizing the the realm of parapsychology because of their lack of having read this particular rigor. work of Plato's? Well, that lack, the lack of rigor. It's um, basically what the West, the the Christians, and uh, adopted the Phaedo as their theology of the afterlife, and therefore for like a over a thousand years that you couldn't question that. But then in Thomas Hobbes questioned it in the 1500s and then Locke and Hume. But uh, where the Western philosophy have come, has come down on it is, as Hume pointed out, the question of an afterlife is incommensurable with Aristotelian logic. And then the logical positive went on to point out that the reason for that is that even though when we say the words there's life after death we have pleasant images and all that there's no cognitive content to it because it's unintelligible. and um but see that's never deterred to me deterred me because uh, unintelligibility is a it's, it's go back in your mind to the world year 1918 and be a, uh, a very well-educated and informed person of that year. And now listen to the following sentence. All four of Ethel's grandparents perished and were lost in a wreck long before her mother and father were born. In 1915, that's unintelligible, right? But now add the knowledge subsequently developed of the role of DNA in her gene splicing, gene editing, cloning, and you've got an intelligible scenario. And that is where the the, the real life after life question from, you know, serious thinkers is right in that zone now where what was unintelligible is now becoming intelligent. And Paul, do you have anything to add on the tail end of that? I do. I, I think a lot of it has become uh, intelligible result of shared death experiences, which is yeah. what that's what this book is about. Uh, we've we've spent you know decades examining near death experiences, and we finally decided to look at this whole field through kind of a different lens, and that shared death experience. A shared death experience is one person shares their death experience with at least one other person. Uh, so, I mean, I know that seems unlikely, but it happens more frequently than we've shown, which we've shown in this book. Yeah. And I think that updates this whole argument about the afterlife. Uh, so because because yeah. a near-death experience is a subjective experience. You know, if you have a near-death experience, only you can really describe it. Only you can verify it's it's uh, that it happened. But with a shared death experience, you have at least one other person who can tell the same story, uh, and and that makes it an objective experience. And that's why shared death experience experiences are so valuable because mm -hmm. they objectify the near death experience. I I couldn't agree more. And in my definition, I, I adopted the working definition of Tom Bearden um, some years back where he says any any uh, reality shared by more than one person is an objective reality. It's a shared reality. So 
Yes, this is 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 the the whole focal point of the book is is turning on shared death experiences. Is that is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's exactly what we do. Um, and and you know, I think Brendan personally, the way I put this together is um, this this standard form of debate we have in common sense about near death experiences. Some people say, oh, this is indicator of an afterlife. Other people say, oh, this is just oxygen deprivation to the brain. And that argument goes back to Plato and Democritus. Plato thinking that these are indicators of an afterlife. But Democritus, who had figured out that everything is made of tiny little bits, he called atoms. They looked at this same experience, which were no doubt rare in that time, but nonetheless did occur. And um, Plato said, oh, that means an afterlife. But uh, Democritus uh, said, well, no, this is, there's no such thing as a moment of death. And even after an apparent death, the body, there's still some biological activity, which he was thinking of on the atomic level right and that's the same debate we have thanks to lavoisier we now call it oxygen deprivation to the brain but it's the same argument and people you know there's many people obviously not you or me or paul but i learned very quickly that many people are threatened by this information Mm, it's it's um you know contradicts what they think of their religion or you know and and so for that kind of mind, it is essential to have some sort of rational framework in which to debate this, which is everybody accepts. And the one we have is the format of debate between those who say oxygen deprivation and those who say it's the afterlife. But the trouble with that system is that it's a very common thing for the bystanders at the death of someone else who are not themselves in ill or injured, nonetheless have these same things that we call a near-death experience. They say they, as grandma died, I myself got out of my body with her, went partway toward this light. Or people say that apparitions of the dying person's deceased relatives come in the room or the room fills with light and even cases of people who empathically co-lift the dying life review of the person who's passing away and see this the, the fact that that doesn't fit into the standard way of arguing about this is why people don't notice it it's for the people who are so scared of this that they've got to hold on to that bifurcation see this they can't even acknowledge this and uh so it's it's a harder thing for and also i think there's the um most people when they if they've never had death they they can think of a near-death experience oh that happened to that other guy right and not so comfortable for them imagining themselves being in that position whereby it's a lot more easy easier for people to imagine that they might be there when somebody else dies and may experience this so for whatever reason it is this is just terrifying information for people and well as some as some near-death experiencers say and some people have shared death experiences too you don't believe it until it happens to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then once you have a near-death experience, which millions of people have, or they they uh, hear one from their, their family members who are dying or from friends who are dying, they believe it. They believe it. And, and, and yeah, to that, you know, that's sort of one of the ways you get to believe in these experiences. Yeah. Um, it's hard to, hard to deny when it's, when it happens to you. Um, Sure. What do you think is the what do you guys think is the importance of you know a broader acceptance of this kind of an experience into Western culture, say, or the world at large? Well, from uh, from a researcher's point of view, the, the more people who who acknowledge that they've had one or realize that they've had one, it gives us more material to work with. 
you know, because uh, in, in many ways, these studying this stuff is a, uh, a collection of stories. You know, you collect people's stories, you analyze them and see how they fit in, if they fit in at all. They all fit in together. It's interesting because there's always certain traits that, that a near-death experience, for instance, has. And there's traits that a shared death experience has as well. Yeah. But, and, and, you know, to me, this this information is important just because it is. And, uh, you know, philosophy is the how I got into this. I, I was never religious, but uh, this is one of the biggest philosophical questions of, of there is. And uh, that's one of the reasons, by the way, Brad, that I was talking about my discomfort with parapsychology, which is a very pedestrian enterprise, which is basically founded on the the incoherent uh, theory of scientism. And and I, by the way, I'm a lover of science, astronomy being my favorite, but all of them. And uh, um, but scientism is not science. Scientism is a thought, is an incoherent epistemological doctrine about science, which is that scientism says that scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. But I used to teach epistemology, and I would ask the first student, the first students, the first few days, I just said, "What do you guys think knowledge is?" Right, and what students in America, and and I'm sure still. You ask them that question, what they come up with is, oh, science is, knowledge is science. Or Then they say, well, you know, the scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. But then I, after they would state that, I would write that proposition up on the board. Scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. Then I would draw a rectangle around it and I'd say, well, how do you know that? Now, if you think about it, there's two options. One, they say that scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. And I know that by the scientific method. And that is petitio principi, reasoning reasoning in a circle. Uh, You know, assuming what you set out to prove. If, on the other hand, they say, scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge, and I know that by philosophy or history or literary theory or the law, that's a self-contradiction. So scientism is the presupposition of the parapsychologist, and that's where the why they never go anywhere, right? It's in, in reality, in the year 2023, life after death, which is, I think, probably the most important question, is not yet a scientific question. That's just the reality. And any attempt on these part of these parapsychologists to deny that is just fantasy. All it is. So you believe it's a philosophical question? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's it's the foundational philosophical question. And, and one interesting thing about this, which has never been realized, I think, Brandon, is that where does reason come from? Right. We know it comes from about 20 men in ancient Greece from about, you know, um, in over a 280 year period, beginning in about 585 and going to about 320. Okay. And there was no such thing as reason, but they figured it out. But the way they, they sat down the rational principles that we all still abide by, that that the process where they developed those principles involved as one of their main interests how to try to find a rational basis for life after death. Hmm. So what that really means, although a lot of people are afraid to acknowledge this, but that means that the notion of an afterlife is already imprinted in our system of reason. And see, that's just too much for many people to think about, but it's a reality. But there's a way you can get out of that. But it's, it's, 
you know, one of the big problems in this whole field is that it's a narrative of the prophets. Um, and Plato pointed out very beautifully in his Phaedo that, uh, you know, there's all, there's got to be a story, he says, because, you know, the notion itself is so obscure and self-contradictory, apparently, that he said, you've got to have some kind of story just to get thought about it started. They had the same ones we did to do today. You know, I got out of my body and went through a tunnel or, or you know, I saw an apparition or what. They had those same experiences. Um. But um, the, the fact that this notion of, of an afterlife is already there lurking in our, mm. our very system of reason presents a problem that we, and there, there is a way out of it. But like I said, that what most people that were, you know, interested in this, they love the stories. Plato said, you got to have the story, but even a bazillion stories doesn't add up to a proof of life after death. You have to have some set of concepts to link the experiential narratives with the uh, statement that there's an afterlife. And that can be done, but it's, it, ha- it, take, it, it takes people out of the framework of story. Mm-hmm. They have to think conceptually, which is... I, I know it's a little better and little minimally better in Australia, <laughs> but it's horrific in, in the United States. You know, people don't want to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, Paul, do you have anything you want to um, chuck in there? Yeah, when I start talking to Raymond about this, it's to me, it's like trying to figure out what a Bitcoin is. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a big tangle of of. Uh, of roots there. And I think Raymond can follow the roots better than I can. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but I think also there's a lot of great science that's done based on stories mm-hmm. and based on narrative. So, you, you know, I think you can go both ways with that argument. What is, I mean, can we apply the, you know, the scientific method to the type of material you guys have been working with in your book? And, and if so, what does that look like? Well, I don't think that he's saying no, but I don't think that's correct. Okay, let's see. It depends. You can apply it to the these things f- with narratological purposes. It makes sense to do a study of near death experiences from the scientific way that that uh, talks about their um, their structure and so on. Uh, but it, it, to to go from no matter how many narrative stories you have to a logical conclusion that there is life after death is not in 2023 possible well, wait, wait, while wait, wait, staying wait, wait. in the narrative framework. Wait a minute. If Okay. Say we have a hundred stories, which we do, of, of people who have, uh, for one reason or another, had an out-of-body experience. And let's say it's always been in a surgical arena. So they so they come out of their body, a typical story. They can hear the do- they can tell you what the doctors said. You can they can tell you about tools that are in the operating room, who's there. They can leave the operating room and they can go into another room and they can be correct about what they see and hear in these other rooms. Yeah. That if you have enough of those cases, is don't look at me like that. <laughs> is is uh, is a proof of of that consciousness has left the body. Well, two things, two things here. Okay. One, I'm not saying that there's not an afterlife. No, I no, myself have given up. All right, I give up. It's and and I am a skeptic in the real sense that the so-called skeptics, the, they don't know what they're talking about. Most of them are entertainers. They've never even read Pyrrho or Sextus Empiricus, as I know from asking them. And you can't know what a skeptic is unless you know who Pyrrho and Sextus Empiricus is. But none of those people know it. What they are is a, a religion called humanism. Mm-hmm. And it was my dear friend, Paul Kurtz, who is a professor of philosophy, was the instigator of this. And the so-called skeptic society is an arm of the humanist society. And the humanist is not like uh, 
Thomas More and Erasmus. That is the, the modern religion, which is these were people who were raised in a religious context, but gave up the idea of God, but they still like religion. So they have to have a funeral ceremony in a way, but it's all based on no God. You know? And it's a very adolescent mentality, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, skeptics, and dear Paul was, you know, he was so disgusted by the end of his life at these ideologues that he had, you know, had created through his genuine desire to do something nice. But, but um, as a skeptic, what the, what the skeptic means is a skeptical philosophy is a te- a spiritual practice. Actually, you know, even Aristotle. Uh, he, you know, Plato and Aristotle, for example, they would have you. It wouldn't be intelligible to them to separate the spiritual quest from the intellectual quest. We do it today, but it was unthinkable. And, and so, uh, these early philosopher philosophies were spiritual practices as well as intellectual. And so, the practice of skepticism is to uh, know to. To, first of all, to know logic very well, which they could from Aristotle. Right? They got that down. And if you think of logic as a system for generating conclusions from premises, then what they said was, well, what if we really bear down on this? We ask every question. We really think this through. But in the end, what we do is we refrain from drawing a conclusion. That's just what it meant. And, and they did it because, number one, they found it was a powerful mind-expanding modality, which it is. And also because, if you think of it geometrically, and everybody is rushing in this direction to get to the conclusion, but your technique is to avoid a conclusion, then that opens up your side path. So you see things that everybody else would miss. And so that's, now, knowing that, what, run that back through the, the statement of these ignoramuses who don't even know what the word means. Oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. Wait, wait <laughs> now, a that's a self-contradiction. Wait a minute. Here, here. Okay, you, you, you have veered on. from the original discussion. The original, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, okay, we're going to have to go to back to back. out-of-body experiences and people tell you accurate, give you accurate accounts of things that they shouldn't be able to see or hear. But and I bet I bet I get hundreds to the of those together. So you're way off route. Well, Let okay. me just describe my route. My route is this. I know I know the logical reasons why you can't draw a conclusion, although that is that's not true anymore, but we'll put that aside. But where I have come to the the through my skeptical procedure is I have given up. It's like I cannot think my way out of that what sounds still very counterintuitive to me, that I gather, yeah, there is an afterlife. And the fact that in 2023 that that is not yet a scientific item means nothing to me because I I have a better method than, (laughs) than that. And my method has gotten me to the point where I give up. For example, I have heard the story of uh, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll, who's an ER doctor. And, um, and, and this is only one of many physicians I know whose medical judgment I trust absolutely and who've had near-death experiences or shared death experiences and who assure me not just that it was real, but that it was more real than this ordinary waking reality. For example, Jeff O'Driscoll was in the hot as an emergency room doctor, was in the hospital when Jeff Olson, a graphic arts expert, had had a horrific car crash in which his leg was smashed off and his wife was killed and one of his kids, but one of the kids survived. So Jeff Olson was taken into the hospital and, you know, successfully treated. And, but during this time, he had a near-death experience. Meanwhile, Jeff O'Driscoll, the ER doctor, went into 
you know, this scene where Jeff Olson was surrounded by all this equipment and had a conversation with the dead wife of Jeff Olson. See, so I mean, and I could give you lots of other cases like that. And <clears throat> where I've got, I just can't think my way out of the fact that I know probably at least a dozen or so wonderful physicians whose absolutely medical judgment is top rate. Yeah. Who just had and unanimously agree about what they have experienced that far from being a fantasy, this was more real than real. So you see, I give up. I mean, I just say, yeah, there's an afterlife. And that and that one of the ways that we're pursuing it is, you know, is falsely ungrounded. It's, you know, parapsychology, in addition to being a pseudoscience, is also um, ahistorical. It didn't begin with any sort of intellectual event like philosophy did. It began with two little girls in upstate New York cracking their tongues. <laughs> and a whole religion came off of this, right? And now it's, it branched into psychical research and parapsychology, which claim to be the experts on on life after death without ever having had read the feed up the fado or knowing anything about you know it's it's ridiculous and so but i'm saying that we can liberate ourselves from this and yeah there's exciting new ways to look at the question of the afterlife we can actually reformat our minds in advance in such a way that when subsequent we have a near-death experience, we'll be able to talk about it in a whole new way. It's already happened once that I know of, but it'll it'll happen again. So what I'm saying is very exciting. It's not a not a negative thing. I'm saying, yeah, this there is an afterlife, and there's ways opening it up that without resort to pseudoscience or scientism, that we can actually solve the question. Paul, you look like it, you've had a few points where you wanted to jump in there. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I, I'm not sure exactly what you're saying. So let me recap a bit. Are you saying that collecting stories is scientism? It's a way that you shouldn't be doing. No, it? no. I'm saying that it's it's that scientism is the attitude they bring to it. See, okay. a parapsychologist doesn't ask the question. Um, well, this question of life after death seems important. What method do we bring to it? Yeah. The the parapsychologist says, looks at this question. Let's let's put it into a scientific mind. and that's a fallacy. See, they don't they don't pause to ask the first question, which is what kind of question is this? And the the well, don't you the, think that happens a lot in in science period? I mean, in many oh yeah. Ways. Yeah. Psychological yeah. papers are yeah yeah, but this is really oh absolutely, but yeah. this is the one that I'm, you know, I'm familiar with, and and this is nothing wrong. This is not personal. Yeah, it's like some of my best friends are parapsychologists. That's really true. <laughs> and you know, I talk like this with them. Yeah, they know my point of view. Do you do you think do you feel like anything? you know, has come out of parapsychology that's, you know, worth worthwhile or worth discussing? <laughs> no. Well, do you consider shared death experiences parapsychology? I mean, what do you, what do you consider it then? Oh, Just, no, no. What do you consider? You know, okay, this, then we're not clarify this because I'm, I'm getting lost here. Oh, okay. Well, what I mean is we, we don't have to say that, that, that to investigate shared death experiences rationally, which we're doing, mm -hmm. that we have to make out or pretend that it's science. It's not yet science. Yeah. You know, the, the, the classical way that problems have become uh, scientific questions is that they originated in, in uh, philosophy and then yeah, yeah. through a process yeah. Some person came out and found out some way to actually verify it by observation. And I think we're getting close to that now, the near-death experiences. I, you know, it's it's not yet um, a certain. None of this is to frown on the afterlife. 
This is to frown on false ways that people in their excitement and their enthusiasm for science have made this into pseudoscience rather than to into a which I think it absolutely is in becoming a a genuine branch of human knowledge. Yeah. It is becoming that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's it's really interesting to hear me. Um I wasn't expecting Paul and Raymond to sort of debate each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad thing. I mean we do no, this. No, no, we we you know the way our, you know, we have always worked like this. It's like we just took, put different perspectives into this. Yeah. Yeah, and it comes out well. We've known each other 35, 35 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And how many books have you co-authored? Is it, this is not the first, I'm guessing. This is the sixth. Sixth that you've co-authored. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you guys are the... like an old married couple at this point. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Watch you know, it, Paul is such just like, I just, you know, Paul is like a family to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we've been. I, I have hours and hours of audio tapes that I've made of Raymond, where we sat on his porch when he lived in Alabama, and he's moved to Florida now. But we uh, sat on his porch. He had the, the creek running, beautiful sound of the creek, and the sound of his rocking chair, <laughs> which he's in right now. Creek, 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 yeah. back and forth. And I just have literally. I think I have hundreds of hours of every book we've done. Wow. I've, I've taped all the research with Raymond and we've had these discussions like this. Yeah. And it's always uh, fun. It is always yeah. fun. I, yeah. And uh, what I know about Paul is that eventually it's like, it's one thing I quickly realized in our relationship was that Paul is from not just a journalistic background, but also fine arts background. Yeah. He has an MFA. And that I quickly realized in talking with him that journalists ask a whole different set of questions than philosophers do. Yeah. And philosophers and psychiatrists. And uh, that that's great. I mean, it's like by the, you know, just you ask one set of questions as a journalist, but different set as, as a psychiatrist or a philosopher. And it's, it's what that, that process does is it creates something that people can read. <laughs> yeah, right? one, right. one, I mean, of things, one of the things I have to do with Raymond when I'm writing is keep him on track yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he'll go to ancient Greece and, and nonsense and all kinds of other stuff. And, and uh, I have to, you know, pull the reins yeah. back on the path. Yeah, uh, I think I need someone like that hanging around me when I'm writing. <laughs> Yeah, well, see, that happens because, you know, you're and then what happens, then what happens. So we always go off on these paths that are. Uh, what do you write, Brandon? I'd like to know what you write. Well, I mean, the, this book I'm finishing is is very, very heavily towards the afterlife um, from different angles. And, you know, you were, you were talking earlier about, um, you know, there's the story collecting aspect of it. And then the, people need a like a set of conceptual or concepts to be able to work with it. Um, so right. I feel like I'm bringing, bringing those elements together. Ah, <clears throat> uh, good. Well, that's what, I mean, that's what we did in this book. One thing we were very careful of doing this book is take a, a conservative, a conservative look at this and not, and not put our opinions necessarily into our findings and not to mix religion with what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's, that's, kind of the death of this subject i think yeah is you have to convince people that hey i'm not talking about religion i'm talking about what is is and this is what we're finding yeah uh, people and, yeah sorry yeah. go ahead no and, and that's a that's a wall you have to get over mm. yeah it's it's so entrenched you know it's like raymond hinted at earlier you know you've got this the background, the psychic background of the Western world is Judeo-Christianity, and those are the sort of root concepts that people always default back to, even when they're not religious, when they're not interested. That's, That's all they've got to work with. And trying to separate them and go, oh, no, no, we're just examining what happened here. We've nothing to do with religion. Just what is the? We're just questioning what's going on here. What is the phenomenon occurring here, and how do we make sense of this? But so many people can't disentangle the, no. that from the religious side of it. It's yeah, it's quite galling. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah. I'll give you an example because I'm, I'm I'm a documentary filmmaker as well as a as a book author, and uh, 
uh, I've been working on a documentary film about holy relics. And we were in France uh, examining the crown of thorns, okay, which was bought by bought by Louis XI way back when. And so I was talking to this priest, and he says, oh, well, yeah, what, what do you do? What else do you do? And I said, I, was, I write these books about near-death experiences, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, describe them. And he said, well, you know, that's a, that's, watch, your, watch it, because you're on a satanic path. <laughs> okay. Then, later in the same day, he talks to me about being with someone when they die, and they have all these same experiences I just pointed yeah. out. You know, and that's no longer the satanic path. That's now the 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 dogma, you know, that yeah. he follows. Is it um, non-satanic because it was a priest who was there having the experience and then reporting on it? Yes. And it was because he had exactly that that was the reason and he saw what it really is. And uh, <laughs> but you know, when you start to talk to then if you're around Catholics, there's so many different sects of Catholics, like mm. Jesuits you know, and, and uh, all these Mother Mary ones and on and on, that you get all different points of views. I mean, I have a vast number of readers in the clergy. <laughs> and, 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 it, and with Raymond, it's, uh, it's undoubtedly the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's a, there's a satanic road. I mean, I have relatives that are Seventh-day Adventists. They're on the same path as this, this uh, Catholic priest was. You better watch out. Because you're fooling with something that you don't understand, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, go ahead, Raymond. <laughs> curiosity is the distinguishing feature. I think it's. Um, I mean, I've known plenty of religious people who are interested in these things, and then plenty of religious people who say, "Oh, this is the Satan," you know. And the difference between those two groups is simply curiosity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, <laughs> the first group would be, I'm just curious about the second group. I know the answers. Right. Yeah. 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 They have a, they have a framework that gives them, you know, a priori the answers so they don't have to think about anything. And, and it so plainly it makes them miserable too, Brendan, which is about so fascinating. Do those people look happy? Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's just, uh, it's, I guess Freud called it anal retention. And, uh, and you know, that's a pretty good descriptor, I think. Yeah. I remember, um, Paul, jump in if you if you like to. I just remember your book um, from some years back now, Raymond, um, The Last Laugh, where you, you spent quite some time analyzing the the psychology of the, the Bible-thumping types out there. And it was quite yeah. amusing at, at various points. It was very funny <laughs> to read. <laughs> I meant it to be funny, but some people were offended by it. I was just well, being some people funny. do not like that book. Well, the sense of humor is not the strong suit of the fundamentalist, right? Oh, that's <laughs> right. That's a great quote. That's my quote of the day. I'll write that down. <laughs> but yeah, um, it was it was just great to read. You know, this someone actually tackling that and, and talking about it and doing so in a humorous way as well. I think it was fantastic. So I found a few little nuggets in there. Um, and yeah, so you guys have both obviously been in this field a long time. So you've been able to make a lot of these types of observations from your own vantage points. Um, Paul, what, what's your, I mean, you, you shared an experience with a, a guy who, you know, said that you're on the devil's path and this type of thing. Um, do you have a similar sort of outlook as far as, you know, what it is that makes those people operate the way they do and why? Well, let me step back a little bit from that and say that I, <laughs> I think religion the root of religion isn't it the near-death experience. The, re- the root of, re- of resurrection religion is the near-death experience. And, and resurrection religion, Raymond might jump in on this, but as far as I know, the, the root of it is in uh, ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. that that is acknowledged as being the, the uh, uh, first resurrection religion. And uh, they talk about on the walls of Egypt, uh, Egyptologists, they talk about the possibility that they sat around and talked about experiences they'd had when they were attacked by wild animals or when they had been ill and they had left their bodies. And you can see that on the walls in Egypt. I mean, I've spent a long, a lot of time in Egypt, and you see it all over the walls, people leaving their bodies, the raw and the cob, the spirit. Uh, uh, and... I think that that is the beginning in my book 
of resurrection religion, where they started to believe that people came back. Mm-hmm. I think they started to believe that because they were analyzing near-death experiences before yeah. they were named or defined. And they analyzed it in such a way that it was so powerful to them that they made an entire culture of it. E- ancient Egypt was a death culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you like it here now, it's going to be better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they would represent that. And what they saw, what people saw when they almost died, uh, they would then put that onto the walls or put that under, under their uh, papyrus representations and in their in their words. So uh, that's what I think, kind of what I think about religion. I think religion co-opted the near-death experience mm-hmm. and then codified it. That seems very plausible to me that the whole notion of an afterlife came out because people had near-death experiences. But then if you if you even look at the species before uh, what is our species? Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens. sapiens. Before Homo sapiens. I think it was Homo nalia. Something like that. Yeah, I don't know much about them. They've They've been been able able to look at their burial. Not well, actually, <clears throat> at their sort of natural tombs and and their burial plots, and see that they're buried and they're tooled for the afterlife. They're given tools, they're given food, and they're you know curled up around it. Uh, that's a sign that they that they were having experiences like this, Look, and, this and, yeah. and they codified it as well. By making it part of their burial uh, tradition, so mm, yeah, and this is totally irrelevant. But I mean, I just got to interject this. I just read yesterday that in Africa, archaeologists have uncovered a complex wooden structure, which was preserved by being underwater without oxygen for a long time, mm-hmm. which antedates Homo sapiens. Hmm. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah. I, yeah. I had um, you guys are probably finding me interesting if you haven't already checked out um, Michael Cremo's work. Had him on the show recently, and and his whole thing is is the this evidence, this archaeological evidence that has been dug up over the last couple hundred years and ongoing. Like you've just demonstrated for him that we've got this massive antiquity, human antu- antiquity that goes far, far beyond the official timeline yeah. that we're given, yeah. you know, rammed down yeah. in our throats of, you know, 250,000 years or whatever. It's, yeah, yeah, it's far, far more interesting than that. <laughs> when you think about the complexities of the single human life, we can, which we can all appreciate from our own human life, then you try to imagine over the, what, 60 billion human beings that have been around what a just an incomprehensibly vast reality this is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you I look- thank God every day that I came into this, you know, career through astronomy. Because mm-hmm. I remember looking at through the telescope at age seven or eight, and I was curious from the very beginning. Always curious. But I realized looking through that telescope that, hey, I'm never going to know much of anything. <laughs> and that's all right. Yeah. But it makes the what little you can accumulate even more, you know, fascinating, precious. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like Stephen Hawking says, uh, what I'm telling you now in what the next couple of decades will be child's play. <laughs> we're finding that we're learning so much about the world. And- uh, and I want to ask you, actually, Paul, um, because you know Raymond is sort of known as like the godfather of of the NDE, right? He kind of he's the guy who put it on the map in the Western consciousness. Yeah, yeah, we call him the James Brown of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who of was a NDE. neighbor of mine? And he was. You should hear this. You have, wait what? a minute. I'm really? sorry. You got a break for this story? Oh, yeah. Good. Good. One where you I, got picked up by James Brown. Well, I I sort of lost interest in music, Brandon when. Uh, Gene Autry and Elvis stopped recording. Okay, so I'm not, you know, I just don't know much about music. But when I was in medical school, I lived in Augusta, Georgia, and I would go out from my little street of Laurel Street every morning to to run on the track or else to go to medical school. And so I would go to this one corner on Wrightsboro Road, and then and this 
man would come zooming by in his car and always this big smile on his face and hi how you doing so we just developed a kind of uh, friendship and camaraderie just through seeing each other in that corner this went on months and months and one day it was just the flow of stuff was that i sort of came to the corner and made a stop and that he was slowing down for something but traffic or something so I went over and I just said, hi, how you doing? And I, and he, I told, you know, I told him I was going to a medical student. And so like everybody knows he's a medical student, like you get. And so he put out his hand like this, like his right hand off. And he said, Doc, I've been excited. I've been hurting this right here. And so I said, well, um, and so, you know, going through my diagnostic thing, I said, well, what is, what, work what is your work <laughs> and he said work he said work he said man i'm a musician he said i'm james Brown." <laughs> <laughs> but he lived right up the street but he was a really neat guy he was Ah, amazing, amazing. Well, the James Brown of uh, yeah, NDEs. That's a yeah. that's a cool story. I'm James Sorry, Brown. I throw that in there. I <laughs> <laughs> know who I am, then. <laughs> What's your problem, kid? Yeah. It's unreal. Um, yeah, I don't know where where we were going there, but um, feel free to just like launch off with anything. Um, I think I was going to ask Paul how he got, in, the, he got into this field. Paul was saying that I'm the James Brown of the NDE. This yeah. is it. I hadn't heard of you referred to in that way, Raymond, but I'm going to stick with that. Um, uh, how, how did you, because we kind of know your story of how you got into it. It's very quite widely known. I think maybe Paul's story of how you got into it. What's your origin story here? This, this could be something people origin. may not be as familiar with. It's boring, but I'll tell it anyway. Uh, Please. I was in New York City. I was editing a really large uh, 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 consumer health magazine called American Health. Most successful magazine of the 80s, I might add. So one day I got a call from our mutual agent, Nat Sobel. And I had never met Raymond. And uh, and Nat says to me, hey, I've got this guy uh, that I'd like you to help him write a book. And I said, OK, who is it? Well, it's Dr. Raymond Moody. And I said, I don't know who that is. And he says, well, he's the guy who named and defined the near-death experience. I said, I don't know what a near-death experience is. And this was in what, 1980? 88. 88. And and he says, well, you know, he's a harsh guy sometimes. Nat was, not him. And and, and Nat said, well, you know, for the editor of a major health magazine, maybe you're not very smart. You know, you need you need to you need to find out what a near death experience is and study it a little bit. So go down and, and do this book with Raymond. So I always do what Nat tells me, and I went down to Georgia where Raymond lived at the time, and uh, and we just we were gonna, we were writing the Light Beyond, which was our first book. It was kind of a primer on on near death experiences based on research that had been done since Life After Life, and uh, uh, we just became really good friends. And so initially, it was just a work for hire. And then when I finished that book, I, I, I said, you know, Raymond, there's a gap in this book. There's nothing in it about children and near-death experiences. And he said, uh, he said, well, there's a guy in Seattle who's, who's doing, uh, he's about to start some major research on that, Melvin Morris. He's a pediatrician. Well, I got on a plane and went to Seattle. And uh, and wrote uh, closer to the light, which was the first book about children and near death experiences, and and then there were gaps in that book, and so I said, well, we need to do a study on on how near death experiences transform people, and so we did this study, the transformation study in Seattle, and and it was then Raymond and I started talking about reincarnation, and. We wrote a book called Coming Back, which is about reincarnation. And it went like that through, I've now written, I don't know how many books, I think 15 books on near-death experiences. And I've written on a whole lot of other subjects and done a lot of other things. But this has been my primary interest for three and a half decades. Wow. 
it is addictive because um, it is, yeah. You know, it's just inherently fascinating because it's to me it's fascinating, Brendan, for the same reason that Lewis Carroll is fascinating, or Dr. Seuss, and to me. The thing that really grips me is unintelligibility. And, you know, it is it is a major part of science, although we know it is mostly comes to us in the form of entertainment. And uh, and uh, not just kids poetry, but do what music. Get a job that formula is the formula of a shaman song. See, shaman songs were complex verbal products that were meant to trans to transport the shaman's soul over to the other side. And they consisted of nonsense syllables and meaningless refrains. Blended with elements of meaningful language get a job, right? So that the combination of them was more powerful than either one of them. And they used that generated energy from the, the uh, con- consonants of the nonsense parts with the meaningful parts to propel the mind over to the other side. Well, guess what? It works. It works. This was well known in antiquity. You're interested, I think, in ev- evocation things. And um, the the Greeks evoked the spirits of the dead with nonsense verse. And it was, uh, these were, you, you can find them. They found them in the deserts of Egypt, written in Greek, but it was after Alexander. The papyrus didn't rot down there. But they, you know, these complex formulas, you chant the nonsense and then there's it's interspersed with meaningful phrases. And then you do this while gazing into a a polished silver bowl by olive with olive oil in it and a candlelight. And and what can I say? It works. I mean, it sounds so wacky, but you can put yourself into a state that way where you see and converse with your departing relatives. And it, you know, it seems real, which is the most startling part of it to me. You, uh, I mean, this this was reminding me of, didn't you develop this this device into you, a recreation of the, the psychomantium? Um, and yeah, I mean, you've really gone deep into it. We did. That. We talk about that in the, you know, the new book. Oh, good. Proof of Life After Life. Yeah, we got a chapter on that. And it's, uh, you know, it sounds so outrageous, but it shows the cultural relativity. Because if you go back 150 years, everybody in Britain and the United States knew that you could set up a mirror in the living room and light a candle and say a chant, and you could see Grandpa in the mirror. Yeah, Queen Elizabeth did it. Yeah. And, And so what, you know, like, and now suddenly 150 years later, that sounds impossible and outrageous because of Marconi, right? I mean, I'm assuming that what happens was since this dropped out about 1950, right? What happened was that instead of being together in the living room and gazing into a mirror, people started listening to this device and then it got a picture on it. And so, you know, that's the shift that made this impossible. But evocation of the deceased is a is part of the collective cultural heritage of humankind. And it was always done with nonsense verse. Which it, which can be very mind bending. You know, it's Dr. Seuss, I know I don't know that he's known in Australia. Yeah, yeah, we've got him yep. Okay, good. And he you know, uh, his writings, a lot of them are very powerful spiritual things. You know, um, the ABC books, like you go to the Barnes and Noble and you get these books written to entertain kids by te- teaching them their ABCs. And like A is for apple and Z is for zebra. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of them, great works of art. But now we think of that as entertainment. Well, ho, ho, go back. 2,500 years, 
that was a powerful spiritual modality of writing. You used it not for entertainment, but for contacting divinities or communicating with the divine, expressing holy prophecies. There's about a dozen abecedaria, as they call it, in the Old Testament alone. And in his version, which is called On Beyond Zebra, <laughs> Dr. Seuss um, <clears throat> says in, in his alphabet book, he says, and the places I go, there are things that I see that I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. I'm telling you this because you're one of my friends. My alphabet starts where your alphabet ends. <laughs> oh. And to me, that's pretty mind, <laughs> mind ending. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, you know, that describes our research, I think. It does. Yeah, I think it certainly does with this book, because this, this is new to most people, shared death experiences. This is definitely on Beyond Zebra. Yeah. But when, it is. when people read this, they learn there's a thing called a shared death experience. They're then going to start saying, I've had that. Yeah. And, and they'll be able to identify. And once you name and identify something, name and define it, the doors are open. Mm -hmm. Start telling their stories. What, um, how many stories do you have in this book? Just out of interest, <laughs> a whole bunch. A lot. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know. <laughs> you know what's different you know, about I mean, this so book. many narratives. It's just like, yeah. uh, I don't know. I, I don't mean, know. over the years, uh, way back when we wrote The Light Beyond, I was also working on a book on reversing heart disease. So I was working with Raymond, and then I would go to Cleveland and deal with this, uh, heart cardiologist in, in uh, Cleveland to talk about reversing heart disease. So one day I was in Cleveland and, and the doc, the doctor says, uh, what else are you working on? And I told him about this near death experiences. And he says, you know, that's all bullshit. He said, I, I have uh, resuscitated hundreds of people and, uh, and no one's ever told me a story about that's like a near death experience. So anyway, we we were at a nurse's station he got called away and all the nurses came over to the table and they said, well, we see him all the time. Hmm. And the problem with him is he doesn't talk to his patients. Uh huh. There you go. Uh, you know, he just asks, are you fine? Do you feel good? Thank you. And he leaves the room, but we stay in the room. We talk, we talk to the patients and we hear these all the time. Since then, that was 30 years ago, Raymond. It's more yeah. than 30 years ago. Now, this book is full of, of shared death experiences from medical doctors. Oh, hmm. uh, See, this and, is... Sorry, and so, sort of amazing me. There's a whole bunch that are just voluntarily told. Or, or, you know, if you get around a doc, if you get around someone and start talking about this subject, and if there happens to be a doctor in the room, they're going to come over and talk to you about it. Hmm. It's, so. Number one, it's it's... It's technology partly because see people, you know, I just kind of get uncomfortable. People always pat me on the back. Oh, you, you know, you're so courageous. They say, bring this out. <laughs> well, what happened was that in the sixties and seventies, this technique of cardiopulmonary resuscitation was perfected or, you know, greatly improved. So that what happened just within a, decade or so was that something that had always been known about but was extraordinarily rare suddenly became you know i would go i would get you know these civic clubs in the u.s which were started by ben franklin but you know now there's dozens of them. and uh, you know they have to have the speaker every wednesday or tuesday you know and so um and and then these at that time these were the it was all male you know and these were the movers and shakers and these little things so you know as soon as they hear oh this this is professor over the, over to the university he's talked to people who almost died then I would be invited to the civic club and it never failed you know every time that somebody come up Doctor Moody I've never told anybody this but and it was. And, you know, they say, you were so courageous to bring this out. Well, I knew full well from my own experience that 
anybody who wanted to check up on me, if they would just ask, or especially doctors, if they would just ask their own patients, quickly see that you know this was common, and uh, and and it's now even more common. You know, one of the interesting things that's happened uh, in in terms of this uh, the whole skeptical thing is that the real skeptic like the Hume person, the, you know, the David Hume, that kind of mind, not these entertainers as they mostly are, don't know what the word means, but the, the skeptics, uh, and beginning with Pyrrho in, in ancient times, but articulated very well by David Hume, who said, well, you know, he said, I don't even know. He said, as to the impressions which arise from the senses, he said, in my opinion, it is completely beyond the possibility of rational knowledge, whether they arise from the objects or from the creative power of our mind or from the author of our being. And that, to me, is obvious. I just don't know. Right? But, Hume said, he said, but, you know, I go to dinner parties just like everybody else. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you can you can carry on the skeptical frame of mind, but that doesn't forbid you to. And so what I have seen over the 60 years, I guess, that I've been looking into this, that, um, that this is now just part of the, it's no longer in that intellectual realm. It's now part of the framework of society. Because mm. any party you're going to go to, there's somebody going to be there. Said, yeah, I went out of my body. I, and, you know, the older you get, as you will find as you get older, the, the more, the, the older you get, the greater percentage of the people your age you know have had some sort of experience of stepping over into some other framework of existence. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, by the way, Raymond's a terrible person to have at a dinner party. No, because no. because he's so interesting, nobody eats. <laughs> <laughs> the food goes to waste. So, um, okay. So where where do we go from here? I could see I could see that problem. That that's definitely going to be a problem with Raymond. Um, but I appreciate the the depth of the the historical, you know, and philosophical foundation that you've you've got there, Raymond, so that you can. You know, share that with people. I mean, even I've been in this space for twenty years, and I, I'm still getting little little nuggets as you're talking, which is great. Um, and I can go and follow up and chase up leads and things. But um, have either of you, gents, had one of these experiences yourselves? We both have. Yeah, and that was part of the reason that we got involved in studying shared death experiences to begin with. This concludes part one of the show. You'll find part two and related materials in my members-only portal, The Truthiversity, the consciousness-raising university. This creation is the official home for all my multimedia research and entertainment content. Updated regularly, my members get access to absolutely everything I create, including full podcasts, videos, blogs, courses, audio files, live internal events, the whole enchilada. Grab yourself a free 24-hour pass at access.truthiversity.com.